This is Sunrise, the who, what, when, where, and WTF of Florida politics. I'm Jim Rossica, filling in for your regular host, Rick Flagg, from our tastefully decorated and well-appointed recording studio in downtown Tallahassee. Coming up, First Lady Casey DeSantis and the gray areas of state ethics law. Amber Mariano is cleared after she called for a corruption investigation in Port Ritchie. And some good news finally out of the panhandle. Jobs are returning there to the areas that were ravaged by Hurricane Michael. Those stories and more, including a roundtable, because really that's the only table we got, with pollster, pundit, and political guru Steve Van Cor on this Friday edition of Sunrise. And now, the top stories. First Lady Casey DeSantis flew on a jet controlled by a political contributor to her husband, and that's raising some interesting ethics questions, especially because Mrs. DeSantis attended both a Republican Party fundraiser and a health care policy event. Maury Hosseini, the well-known contributor to all things GOP, allowed Mrs. DeSantis to fly on his corporate jet. The question is, is that wrong? Turns out, it's not all that clear. As Politico Florida pointed out, state, state ethics law generally frowns on gifts to public officials from lobbyists or businesses, but the law is, quote, silent on how it applies to an unpaid and largely historically ceremonial role like First Lady, end quote. As for Casey DeSantis, a former TV newscaster, this week she said, quote, everything we do is 100 percent in accordance with the law. When she was asked whether she would fly again in a campaign donor's plane, she, well, dodged the question, saying, I am doing everything that I can in accordance with the law. State Representative Amber Mariano did not commit a criminal act when she asked state investigators to look into allegations regarding the city of Port Ritchie in Pasco County. That's according to a report by the Tampa Bay Times. As the Times explains, Port Ritchie's city manager and city attorney recently asked FDLE to consider a charge of filing a false police report against Mariano, a Republican from Hudson. That's because they said they had already disproved her claims that the city inappropriately refinanced a $3 million bond and improperly spent redevelopment money. The FDLE said it looked into the complaint and then delivered its findings to Bernie McCabe, the state attorney for Pasco Pinellas. The law enforcement agency said in an email that McCabe informed FDLE no crime had occurred and the case, to coin a phrase, is closed. One year after Hurricane Michael dealt a devastating blow to northwest Florida, industries there are recovering and bringing jobs back to the region. That's according to a new report by Career Source Florida, the statewide workforce policy and investment board. Here's what the numbers show. Hurricane Michael contributed to the over-the-year loss of more than 5,500 jobs in the affected counties, with the low point in November 2018, the month after the hurricane. But by this March, the most recent data available, the -the over-the-year loss in jobs improved by a little more than 2,300 workers. Michelle Denard, CEO and president of CareerSource Florida, said, The destruction was overwhelming, but so is the spirit of resilience. She said CareerSource Gulf Coast and CareerSource Chipola have worked tirelessly to help their communities recover and get back to business as quickly as possible. 
Joining us in the studio now is Steve Van Cor. Steve, happy to have you here. Thanks for having me, Jim. Uh, I wanted to lead off talking about the ray of good news I talked about previously coming out of the panhandle uh, after Michael with some uh, jobs finally starting to repopulate there. I understand there's some other good news coming there, out of the there panhandle. There is, Jim. You know, it's funny because we hear a lot of the bad news coming out of the panhandle, and a lot of it's appropriate. It's hard to get jobs, hard to get buildings, it's hard to get construction. There's a shortage of labor, a, a, a variety of things. But I want to. This is an interesting story that hasn't been told yet about the panhandle, and in remembrance of the one-year anniversary, I thought it would be kind of good timing. The uh, issue began with Big Bend Community-Based Care working in partnership with several local jails in the area to put telehealth portals inside the jails. Why would they want to do that? I was talking to Sheriff Smith of Franklin County. He said he was having people who were addicted to drugs in the jail, leaving, serving their time, 30 days or whatever, and going right to their drug dealers. And they're putting these portals in there so they can administer what's known as medication-assisted treatment. The person can, can be seen by a counselor and be given a, a prescription to help them reduce the cravings. Those two together have been proven to be very successful. Well, also today we heard some news, uh, people are giving uh, First Lady a hard time. Here's what a great example where the First Lady stepped in and made a big difference. She heard about what's going on in the jails and she said, hey, I wonder could we do these in the schools because we're seeing a lot of problems in the local panhandle schools related to the the impact of Hurricane Michael. You see uh, the depression going up. You see adverse incidents going up. You see families, uh, drug addiction going up. Uh, as a result of people not having jobs, et cetera. It was her idea, a good idea, to say, can we put these telehealth portals in the schools? They contacted a company. Well, she brought the DCF secretary, Mr. Popple, in, who also brought in Big Bend Community-Based Care. They worked together very cooperatively and dropped 63 of these telehealth portals into those schools. Now, these aren't iPhones where you just take out of your pocket and they start to work. It takes a lot of training, a lot of sophistication, but already they're getting some great results of getting these kids counseling so that if the nearest counselor is in Pensacola or Tallahassee, this person doesn't have to drive two hours to sit with a child for a half an hour and then drive back. A lot of times what happens is those meetings never happen. They can set these things up and these kids can get this counseling on the spot and it's happening. I want to tell you one quick story. It's a great story. Kid was given this counseling. They did it. I believe it was in Gulf County. And when it was, the session was over, they asked the child, how do you feel? He says, oh, I feel good. I'm glad I had this conversation. Says, Would you like to do this again? Because we as adults are unsure, how's this going to play out with the kids? Well, we're not, we know, those of us who are 50, we're used to human-human contact, right? But these kids grew up on, on the internet. And this kid turned and he goes, I'd love to do it again. I'd love to do it again now. And so we, we're starting to see already good results. Kudos to Secretary Popple of DCF, kudos to Mike Watkins of Big Bend Community-Based Care, and kudos to the First Lady for making this happen. And Steve, just to uh, for the uh, listeners who don't necessarily know what telehealth is, tell us just briefly how that works. You mentioned telehealth portals. I'm going to imagine that uh, somewhere there is a patient standing in front of a computer, a camera, a microphone, something like that, and then some miles away there's a doctor or other healthcare professional on the other end of the line. So these, these systems are not just an iPad, right? It's not doctor by iPad. They're, con they're, they're handled with a counselor 
in the room, but the but the service professional could be a psychologist, a psychiatrist, which remember, psychiatrist is the physician, psychologist is the academic counselor. Uh, they're certified to participate on this. They're trained to use this thing. They close their door. And instead of having that psychologist, let's say, drive all the way across the panhandle, the child is, is, is sitting in front of the telehealth portal. And this, these portals also have they can take blood pressure. They could take. Uh, they can monitor blood oxygen level and other th- things in real time, and so the doctor can sit face to face, or the psychologist can sit face to face with the child and get and get positive feedback. One quick story we got was the um, a child. You know, we're over fifty, so we're used to face to face communication. Guilty as charged. Young, yeah, exactly. Young younger folks like communicating via uh, internet, via computers, via Skype, and things like that. This one child in this one report, which obviously we can't name the name, when asked, would you like to do this again? He goes, yeah, I'd like to do it right now. So these kids like this technology. They feel more comfortable than sitting in a room with an adult. So it's a, it's a high-tech thing. It's not just opening up your iPhone and it works. It does require training. It does require some paperwork. So it doesn't get launched that quickly. So, yeah, it's, it's what you think. It almost looks like a robot with all kinds of little arms and tendrils coming out of it. Again, we're here with Steve Vancor of the Vancor Jones firm here in Tallahassee. Steve, I also wanted to ask you what's going on with, I know you're involved in this, which is why I'm asking you, some of the news with some of the proposed constitutional uh, amendments. Uh, I believe there is a voting-related one that you are involved in, um, but there's also one that relates to minimum wage, and I think there's some news on at at least one or not both of those. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, so... so, uh, Probably this week, this Friday, maybe even t- t- as listeners are hearing this, the minimum wage will likely cross the necessary threshold to get 766200 close a business on Thursday. They had 761000 uh, it may not. If it doesn't happen Friday, it'll probably happen Monday. So that will be Amendment Two. Remember, Amendment One was the citizens. You have to be a citizen in order to vote, which is already the law and already in our Constitution. Uh, next up on the docket will likely be all voters vote. Now remember, all of these still have to go through the courts. That's getting backlogged. We probably won't get anything out of the courts till early next year as to whether they meet single subject and other other variables. And then third up is likely uh, sitting at. 725,000 right now is the all voters vote initiative, which, as you know, I'm working on uh, happily. And uh, those all have to go through the thing. The, the other one that's getting a lot of press lately is the there's two recreational marijuana ones. The one that's been out there for a while has largely been static. Uh, the court and, and other players have been very critical of, you know, can you get 10 pages of amendments into 75 words or less? Probably not. But it's a new one by a group called Make It Legal Florida. They announced earlier this week that they've received 100,000 in the mail. They're going to submit those. So that should trigger the court ruling. As of, you know, Thursday, they only had 75, literally 75. But they're, they, they have a sophisticated team. They have uh, money. Uh, and they have what looks like a pretty good plan, although it's a very, very tough uphill battle. They got to bring in 65,000 a week petitions to get above the one million mark. It's going to be tough sledding, so it might be one of those ones that we we watch it right down to the wire. And Remember, in terms of signatures and timing, 
uh, to get the amount that you need for the 2020 ballot. Explain what the timing you is. You have for to that. have, working it backwards, by February 1 of the year you want to appear on the ballot, you have to have 766,200 verified by local supervisors of elections and then certified by the Secretary of State. So that means you've got to give them 30 days especially in the post-House Bill 5 world, to process those signatures and get it through. That means they've got to be done collecting functionally before Christmas. And so right between now and Christmas, they're going to attempt to gather about a million fifty thousand. Why a million fifty thousand, Jim, is... There's so many redundant. Right. You get the same person at the same publics. People don't fill it out correctly. People fill out wrong names on purpose just to get you off their front lawn, whatever that is. And so the general rule of thumb is you got to get about, you have to get 25% over. And that works out to about a million fifty to a million eighty thousand. That's a lot of signatures. It's a lot of signatures in a very short period of time. Okay. Uh, and remember, here's the other thing. If they don't make it, if they miss it by one day, assuming the court approves them, they don't go away. It goes to the 2024 ballot. I'm sorry, the 2022 ballot. I was going to say, okay. It goes to the next year. To the next statewide ballot. Yeah, so they get certified. It sits out there for two years. But they can keep collecting signatures all the way through. If they they get 765,000 certified, they fall short on February 1, but on February 3rd, they get the necessary number. They don't go on the 2020 ballot, but they do go on the 2022 ballot. Okay. Um, speaking of amendments, there was uh, an amendment passed recently, as you know, to restore voting rights to felons. There was an implementing law, as we call it, passed to uh, put the amendment in practice that has been the subject of some debate and lawsuits. Uh, recently, uh, as recently as this week, there was a hearing in federal court before Judge Hinkle. I think you know a little bit about that. Can you can you synopsize what happened in that hearing? Yeah, this week? Judge Hinkle really took command of the court. It was it was it was very interesting theater. Both sides were scrambling. The debate heretofore has been mostly about fines, fees and restitutions, something that the proponents, the people pushing the amendment said in the court hearing uh, originally for single subject, like we were just talking about, said, yes, it includes the completion of the sentence is the four corners of the sentence, which includes the term served, fines, fees, and restitution. On a letter sent to the governor by the ACLU and others, they likewise said it includes fines, fees, and restitution. The bill gets started. Uh, Representative Grant was pushing this bill, and those same groups not only flipped on the fines, fees, and restitution aspect of it, but then they basically said it's a poll tax. Whether you agree or disagree with the poll tax, the the flipping, I think, caused a lot of people some anxiety. I think Judge Hinkle got us past that this week by basically calling out both sides. The state for its, its lack of presenting a clear case and not having a system in place to allow those felons who have paid restitution, for example, to, to be fully cleared, and also admonish the, the proponents of this for not having their acts together as well. Now, the question here is, will Judge Hinkle find that this law is federally unconstitutional, thereby striking down the amendment? So he has a needle the eye of a needle, he's got to get through on this. My suspicion is he's going to break apart because there was some talk about severability. The state said, well, you can't sever it, Judge. He basically said, yes, I can. And so he's got to kind of find a way to, to split that up and, 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 and keep it in the law to protect Amendment 4 without letting it go too far. So to be clear, right now, 
do county supervisors of election have clear instructions in writing when a person identifies themselves as a felon to you and wants to restore their voting rights, here is what you do, A, B, C, D. So the question, it's a really good question because it's really broader than that. Remember, not only supervisors of elections, but school teachers, motor vehicle departments, even when you get a state park pass, they ask you if you want to register to vote. And a lot of petitions, a lot of these things come in through that. No, the short answer is absolutely not. Now, if the question is specifically asked and the person says, I am a felon, there's no procedure the formalized procedure put in place by the Secretary of State. These local supervisors of elections, understand, are merely, their words, merely ministerial. They're not doing background checks on people. They're not asking the question. What's supposed to happen is it then goes up to the Secretary of State. The Secretary of State's supposed to have a process to notify them back. And remember, these are separate constitutional officers, and they're kind of free to make whatever decision they want in in regards to do they pursue that? Do they just put it in a box? It's unclear at this point. And that, you went right to the heart of the matter, was part of Judge Hinkle's concern is there's no clarity, there's no clear process in place to make sure people are either clearly in or clearly out. And I have not been following this particular issue uh, as closely as others, and it sounds like not as, as closely as you, but what it sounds like is there are a whole bunch of different parts of a machine that have to work together to make this work this this restoration of felons voting rights what i'm hearing from you is all of those different parts don't know how to mesh together right this is all brand new and remember law enforcement was never meant to integrate with the secretary of state which never meant to integrate with the local 67 different constitutionally elected Uh, supervisors of elections offices. And so this amendment did not and really was unable to contemplate the vast coordination that would be necessary. And remember, you're a felon in Georgia. You're a federal felon. You're a felon in different jurisdictions. Those jurisdictions have never been amalgamated into one big jurisdiction. So you're exactly right. It's it's a I think what Judge Hinkle's words were a confusing mess. Who's not a confusing mess is Steve Van Cor, <laughs> Renaissance man, man about town, uh, and uh, uh, smart guy. And I don't mean in the in the, in the way of a smart aleck. We always appreciate having you on. We appreciate your knowledge, Thanks, Steve. Thank you very much. Appreciate a lot of fun. And now here's what's on the agenda for today. The Pasco County Legislative Delegation is going to meet as it gets ready for the 2020 session, starting in just a few months. Expected to attend that meeting, Senators Ed Hooper, Wilton Simpson, and Tom Lee, and Representatives Amber Mariano, Ardian Zika, please don't call him Adrian, and Randy Maggard. That's at 8 a.m. at the Pasco Hernando State College West Campus Performing Arts Center, let me take a breath, in Newport Ritchie. A panel called the Financial Impact Estimating Conference is workshopping a proposed constitutional amendment to legalize the adult use of marijuana. This is the one sponsored by Sensible Florida. It's aiming for the 2020 statewide ballot in that November. That'll be at 8.30 a.m. in the Knott Building at the Capitol. The Slavery Memorial Review Committee is meeting to consider artist submissions and select finalists to design a memorial with those plans being sent to lawmakers for review and approval. That's at 9 a.m. in the Betty Easley Conference Center 
in the state office complex at Southwood in Tallahassee. And the Florida Democratic Party starts its three-day convention. The highlight tonight, Democratic Agriculture Commissioner Nikki Freed hosting a reception. That's at 7 p.m. in Disney's Coronado Springs Resort in the city beautiful Orlando. And time once again for the latest news about Florida Man, the never-ending saga of life, love, and losers. Two men from the Treasure Coast are facing charges after state wildlife officials said they poured beer into an alligator's mouth. The men were identified as 22-year-old Noah Osborne of Stewart and 27-year-old Timothy Kepke of Hope Sound. Officials said the men captured the creature sometime this summer and Kepke copped to pouring a can of cores in the gator's mouth. Both men have been charged with unlawfully taking an alligator. And you may ask, how was this found out? Like everything, there was a video which got posted to social media. Nonetheless, remember, defendants are presumed innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. That's it for today's edition of Sunrise. I'm Jim Rossica, reporting from Tallahassee. For Florida Politics, good morning and have a pleasant rest of your day.